All right, thank you all for coming tonight for Lincoln Leeds. Today we'll be talking about science, and in specific, discussing, for the sake of knowledge, why do scientific research? So we have an outstanding set of panelists today to talk about this topic. And we're going to begin with Professor Cheetham Isaba. And she's a particle physicist and a member of ATLAS at CERN. Additionally, here at Oxford, she leads the Oxford Exotics Group and, of course, is a fellow here at Lincoln College. So, if you please give her a round of applause. For the sake of knowledge, why do scientific research? And I thought quite a bit in the last few days or a week or two about this and decided that this um, the answer to this question has two levels, one personal and one from a societal level. So I will uh, first do give you an answer on the personal level and then later in the talk I will um, go over what I think from a society point of view on why one should do research. So starting with this, this is my daughter Ella Marie, she's I think not even a year old and she's a scientist and she's an explorer and the experiment we have just done here is the peach experiment. So if you are observing her just as a mundane act of eating a peach, you actually don't realize what she's really doing in this action. Because what she's doing is she's exploring her environment, she's testing her mother's capabilities to stand masses and at what point will this mother thing start to intervene and she builds, so she acquires data about gravity, about uh, how the peach tastes, the textures she analyzes the data and then gains knowledge, builds a model and after that model is built, she tests that model she comes back to the same thing, tests reactions so, the, so what babies do and humans do as soon as they are born, they have the instinct to feed and to be fed and to eat. But as important as that is, we have to, when we are coming into this environment, understand where we are. We need to build a model of the environment we are in. And we, how do we do that? By exploring it, by researching it, and then building these models. If we don't do that, we would not survive. So it is a critical um, capability we have to survive, and not only us, any animal needs to be able to do that to a certain extent, otherwise they would go extinct. So my point I want you to take, I mean, from me, and my personal view after talking, thinking about this also is, so all humans to a certain extent are explorers, so we explore ourselves, our environment, the planet, our universe, and by doing so we create knowledge, and I'm German, and as a scientist, scientist work in Germany is Wissenschaftler, and I like that word very much because Wissen is knowledge and Schaffen means creating. And I think this hits much better what I think I'm doing as a researcher or scientist. I am creating knowledge. It's a highly creative process. And as I mean, comparable to arts in that sense, I think, which is also very, very creative. So, um, and how do we do this? We use tools. We use our hands, we use our eyes, these are our detectors which are, were given to us when we were born. And we use our tools, and if our natural or biological tools are not enough, we create tools in order to help us to explore our environment. So, 
and um, they enable us to reach environments which we normally wouldn't be able to experience. Like, for example, this is another tool we have built. This is the Large Hadron Collider. And I'm fortunate enough to work at this tool. It's a proton-proton or heavy ion collision. Um, I mean, where we have high, heavy ion collisions being created. And what you see here is the Lake Geneva. This is the Large Hadron Collider. This, long, this big ring here, 27 kilometers long, 100 meters down on the ground. And at certain points, we are colliding these two proton beams with each other, and we have built detectors. These are our eyes, our ears, around these collision points, and we do acquire, collect data and <coughs> perform our research. And this is my detector I'm working on, the Atlas detector. A person would be like this high here. It's, the collaboration is 3,000 scientists big, and they're coming from more than 34 nations. It's a truly global project. What do we do with these things? So you can think of them as digital cameras. They're very big, they're very precise. We can measure the position of particles with an accuracy more better than a hair width. They're fast, they take 40 million snapshots per second. And as I said, they're truly global. We have been building these collaborations um, out of, I mean, with, with the help of thousands of physicists, technicians, and engineers. <coughs> So what are we doing? So as I said, we're colliding these protons in these detectors, and then we're creating in these collisions new particles, debris, which we detect with these detectors and study these uh, collisions. And what are we doing here? So this is Einstein, and you may have seen this formula, E is equal to C squared. It's now pop art more or less. And um, what this formula tells us is we can transform energy into matter and kinetic energy. When Einstein gained this knowledge or this insight, um, this, this was given to us, to the societies. What can we do with this? We can buy, build nuclear bombs. We can take this knowledge and create energy in nuclear reactors. Uh, or you can take this knowledge and use it to further explore nature, as we are doing right now at the Large Hadron Collider. And um, so the, the, the really exciting bit of what I'm doing when I think about it, it really gets me um, thrilled, is that this machine is enabling me to go back in time to I mean as close as less than 10 to the minus 10 seconds Not even, I'm even closer than a second to the Big Bang with this machine. What we are creating with the energy densities in this machine are metastates which were existing very shortly after the Big Bang. So I am able to study with my collaborators, matter states right after the Big Bang. So we are trying to understand where we are coming from in a true, I mean, really in a fundamental way. And this is today where we are. Where we are. And so we are going back with this machine billions of years to understand our origin. Furthermore, this machine is also, you can think of it as a really big microscope. What we are doing is we are studying the innermost of matter. So these are cells of a size of 10 micrometers. You mean that this means you can fit 100 cells per millimeter. We can see these with the help of microscopes. If you go down and want to see DNA molecules or proteins, then you need to magnify this by a factor of 25,000. This is to do with electronic microscopes. If you want to see the atomic nucleus, you need to magnify again another million times. This you do with accelerators. And we at the, X, at the Large Hadron Collider are able to actually look inside the protons which are making up the nucleus of an atom. And we see that it is made out of quarks. 
And so we are studying these uh, fundamental particles of matter to, un to gain knowledge about this, uh, this level of insights in the, in the matter that we are made of. So now comes the society's perspective. I wanted to, I hope you could take from my first part the excitement is, is giving me, doing what the satisfaction I'm getting out of it on a very personal level and many other scientists and that's why we are, and most of us are in this field. And so from a society perspective, I mean, if I would be not fortunate enough to live in such a society like here in the UK, at a certain point reality would hit, I would have to find a way to maintain my family, I wouldn't be able to devote 100% of my time into research, I would have to go work and maybe do it in a spare time. But I wouldn't be able to get work as efficiently on this research topic if the society wouldn't allow me to do that. In the past, people were either very rich, they wouldn't have to care about this, and then they just did it because of their passion, or they found very rich philanthropy, um, I don't know what you mean, and they get the money, but this wasn't very organized, this was just by random chance if you were lucky enough. So modern societies allow us to do this kind of research and the impact of just particle physics, if you would ask me for what good is your research, I can't give you the answer because it's so far away from your everyday life, what I'm studying, I can't tell you this is good for curing cancer, but we have helped to cure cancer. The accelerators we have developed for our research are being used in cancer therapy. We have developed imaging technologies, as you see here, again for medical technology. You may know, no, you may not know, the World Wide Web was invented at CERN by particle physicists. This is the first, world, first website, you can look at it at CERN if you want. And it was invented because our collaborations are truly global and international. We had to find a way to communicate with each other in an efficient way. So that, that was the birth of the World Wide Web. And another thing I want to highlight is social sculpting. As I said, I'm working in a worldwide collaboration of many nations. And since more than 20 years, I'm experiencing, and not just me, a peaceful worldwide collaboration on, on a constructive project across cultures and across uh, nations. And this, I think, is very important because these links we are building among the scientists will trans are going also out into the nations we are coming from. And they are important and I hope they will... I mean, when I get despair and I look at the news, I think about 10,000 particle physicists in the world and I think about the project we have been able to build, the detectors, and I say, there is hope for us. <laughs> because we are working together and uh, we are able to pull this off. So, highlight, so this are just, uh, I'm nearly done. So science <coughs> transforms societies on many levels and I want to highlight the most important ones from, from my point of view. First of all, it's education and knowledge gain. Education and science go hand in hand, I think. And um, it teaches the societies or the group of people who go through this um, profession or the, for this education, a rigorous and fact-based thinking and, and, and an understanding of uncertainties because I think in the area where we are now right now where, uh, what was it, alternative, alternative facts are coming now up, I think it is quite important that we educate the societies in understanding what data means, what fact is, what the uncertainties are with regard to these facts they are being presented. 
I think science for societies will create stronger democracies. The reason is because we will have a more mature and crit critical thinking citizens. That means we will have to have better politicians to convince us and, that, and we will make better decisions as societies. The other nice side effects and quotation marks I'm not going into, this would be ages, I mean the, the new technological de developments, medical advances, etc. There is a vast, I mean history shows that over and over again Knowledge gain goes usually hand in hand with benefits for society. I think it's critical for our society to for survival. I will put a pin here, I will come back to it, because there are some second thoughts I had about this. And in my opinion, if I would have to pick a society where I want to live, a society which invests in science is a sign for me of a healthy society and a livable society. Societies which are at the brick of survival don't have the margins for scientific research. And um, so I think that is one criteria if I would have to be forced to pick a society to settle down, I would look at societies which invest into science. My last two, nearly two lessons. So how much is the UK society investing in science? So that's why I found this in science.org on the web. So this is, these are numbers from 2012. The UK spent 700 billion that year. And 4,000, and, and if you divide this by 63 million, the population of the UK, you end up with 11,000 per person in this year was spent by the government. And 4,000 went into pensions. 2,000 into healthcare, 1,000 pounds into education, 700 pounds into defense per year per person. And um, if you look how much went into science, it's 160 pounds per year per person is spent on science. And these numbers have even dropped since 2012, okay? That is my shopping expenses at Sainsbury for my, uh, my weekly shopping at Sainsbury for my family, okay? Another thing, 30% of us in the society uh, suffer cancer, 10% uh, stroke, heart disease is 15%. And that year we spent 2.80 pounds per person per year on cancer research, 69p on stroke, and 1.2p uh, pound on uh, heart diseases. You can compare big researches like the LHC, Fusion Search, or World Health Research with non-research um, funding. I mean, just this is the Iraq war here, just the US funding, London Olympics. This is LHC, this little tiny dot, okay? Comparing the UK investment in science globally is showing here, the UK comes quite low uh, in this. And again, I'm a scientist, I don't have the uncertainties, you should take this with, an answer, with a grain of salt. There are obviously some biases in there. But then when I, when I looked at these slides, I thought, what? What kind of society would I be living in if this, if I would be in a society which would, on a con, uh, consistent way, spend ten times more on science? I was just imagining that to myself. What kind of society would we be in? What kind? And then would be, um, and, and I was just, I don't know. I mean, the answer is difficult. So that's a question to to the audience. Let's see. So coming out of summary, personal level, I think. Research is something which comes with us. It's our instinct, it is it's highly human, it belongs to our nature. It's creative, it's fun, exciting, it's fine. And it takes us to places where nobody else was before. On a society level, scientific research can benefit societies, but the level of the benefit, this is my personal opinion, the level of benefit depends on the aspirational motivations of the society who is investing into science. If it's just because of economic growth, I think it will get short-term 
benefits, but long term, this society will not get as much benefit out of it. World domination, you can, gain, you can build bombs and even better weapons to take over the world. Short term, you may gain, but long term, it may, I mean, it will most likely cause the destruction of the civilization. So I think the most the societies which are striving for higher values will gain the most out of scientific research. And uh, because knowledge, as with Einstein, can be used in many ways, and it depends on the motivations of the people who are doing this, fund, uh, funding this research, where this is taking the societies. Thank you. Fantastic presentation by Professor Isabel. And now I have the pleasure of introducing Professor Peter Atkins, who was a fellow and former tutor here at Lincoln in chemistry. Uh, he's also a prolific writer, and in fact, the author of my favorite physical chemistry book as an undergraduate. Uh, he's been the recipient of the RSC's Meldola Medal. And among his many achievements, he's also a founding member of the IUPAC Committee of Chemistry Education. So, without further, further ado, Professor Atkins. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, perhaps two words that you didn't expect me to, to use at the beginning of um, my, my presentation. In his um, Confessions, which is a book that you should certainly not waste your time reading, <laughs> went on to say that seeking understanding is a disease of the mind. And I think that um, really establishes what I want to juxtapose this evening, the, the, um, the approach to understanding that certain aspects of our society pursues, and scientific research in its purest form. Um, I was at a dinner party the other day uh, when I caused my neighbour to storm out when I said I thought that evidence was more reliable than faith, uh, at which point cutlery dispersed and off in, into the sunset. I think that's a deplorable attitude. And I, I think it leads into what I want to say fully as part of, of, of what you have been saying um, before me. I think there's no more important guiding force for civilization than the quest for understanding. And I think that the only reliable source of uh, human understanding is through science, in particular the scientific method. And the scientific method is really um, a, a public pursuit of evidence, of the ability to share that evidence objectively between people, and the construction of theories that fit into a reticulation of ideas, not just bubble up as an island, an intellectual island somewhere, but which fit into a network that already exists. So science is extraordinary 
in the way that it controls itself. And it is even more extraordinary about what it reveals about the world. And I think that um, the revelation of the workings of the world adds enormously to the, the human condition. As we touched on at the right of the end, really, I, I think to live in a rational society, one that uses evidence rather than prejudice, is crucially important to the future of mankind. But I think um, scientific research also contributes at a much more personal level, in the sense that it deepens our delight. I, I, an analogy that I, that I have used elsewhere might be appropriate at this point, that um, you can certainly sit back and listen to a piece of music and simply enjoy it at the level of impact on you, the level of emotional stirring that it generates in you. But um, it's very important to be able to flick a switch at some point and to ask yourself, what is the structure of the music? What is, um, can I deepen my pleasure in this? I don't have to do that every time. Sometimes it's wholly inappropriate, but the ability to understand the emotional impact and the structure of a piece of music, I think, simply deepens your enjoyment of it. So it is in the world at large. You can certainly enjoy the scenes of a landscape, the scenes of um, flowers in bloom, all the beauties of the world. And you don't have to ask how they emerge. But through scientific research and understanding, you are, in, you are provided with that switch. And you can throw the switch and understand the origin of what it is, the impact that you're looking at. You can understand color, you can understand texture, you can understand taste and everything that contributes. So it's a matter of scientific research leading us all, we humans, to understand everything. And of course, we are the only animals, really, that strive towards this understanding. Every other, in, throughout the biosphere, there is always an example of something that can do physical activities better than even the greatest uh, Olympic sportsman that uh, cheetahs can certainly outrun us, birds need no mechanical aids to fly, and so on. But there's one thing that humans do which is quite distinct from the rest of uh, the biosphere, even brought it to include daffodils and daisies, that we think and we strive towards understanding. That is our principal and wonderful ability, and we should not squander it and we should develop it, and the development that is most rewarding and most reliable is through scientific research. So that in a sense is the intellectual argument for, um, for doing research, to deepen our understanding. And I think going through a world understanding is much better than going through a world not understanding, but an academic would say that, wouldn't he? 
I think um, there's also the pragmatic view. The, you, you touched on some of the, you, you, you mentioned or pointed towards some of the, um, the, the contributions to society that emerge from even the most recondite research. Um, take chemistry, which is really, as you heard, my principal um, subject area. Think of what the world would be like if you stripped away everything that chemistry had provided. Certainly, you would strip away chemical warfare. Certainly, you would strip away intrusion into the environment and the, the fears that we have for our, our, the, the future of our planet. That you would also strip away all the artifacts, all the creations, the, the literally material manipulations of chemistry that have contributed to our everyday life. We would literally, literally be back in the Stone Age. What chemistry has done is to transform the very texture of the world. Still, we touch um, natural materials, but almost everything that we touch these days is, is synthetic. The whole world has a different feel about it. In a, in a sense, a much more pleasant feel, a, a feel that is adjusted to um, our, our requirements. Think of the colours of the world. The colours have been invigorated, if you like, by chemistry. And the world is a colourfully vibrant place through the contributions of chemistry. Probably most important of all is the contribution of chemistry, and indeed of this college in particular, through its work on penicillin, and then that transformed into the work on kephalosporins. Um, to um, the, um, the elimination or the amelioration, let me put it that way, the amelioration of pain and suffering and the prolongation of life. All that has emerged from pure research. We would literally, without pure research, be back in the Stone Age with only stones to, to fight with and furs to clothe ourselves in. So I think um, even the most sceptical of scientific progress has to be thankful for the research that has brought us to our current position of literally enjoyment of life. I mean, I think um, there's probably now, this, these decades have been the best time to be alive. That medicine has advanced so much through research. Materials research has advanced so much through research that all our, uh, our, our health and our material surroundings are far better than they were nearly just 100 years ago. I'm not confident that in decades to come we will be able to sustain that for 
aspects of the world that you hinted at, like politicians losing control, basically. But that's for the future. Currently, we are in a wonderful position. We are moving towards complete understanding, and I think I will regret dying before that is achieved, but I mean, probably will. And we are surrounded by the material infrastructure of an enormously rewarding society. And if we had not done basic scientific research, neither of those achievements would have been here this evening. Thank you very much. Fantastic speech by Professor Atkins. And now we have a doctoral student here at Lincoln College in the MCR, Max Jamley, who is a synthetic biologist researching gene editing and cell reprogramming. He's worked in the UK and in the US at the interface of biology and engineering. And he's interested in how living organisms process information at the cellular level. He has a BA in Natural Sciences and an MPhil in Biotech Enterprise from the other university, and is currently studying for a DPhil on the Synthetic Biology Center for doctoral training here. In my field, biology, you often hear people talking about the miracle of love. People say it's a miracle that these complex, chaotic bodies that we have actually work. It's a miracle that birds don't fall out of the sky, that bacteria swim in the soil and fish swim in the sea. These are miracles. Um, but to me, and I think it's tonight's other speakers have started to hint, the real miracle is how much of it we understand. Um, the miracle is that babies can be born um, having been fertilized in a petri dish. The miracle is that we can fertilize those eggs and, and grow them in glass for two weeks, maybe longer. The miracle is that we can uh, screen for some diseases before babies are even born, um, cure others in adults, um, and all sorts of things in between. Um, you don't need me to point out again that none of these things would exist without science. Um, and maybe that argument in itself justifies all of the effort that people like me and our other speakers and people all over the world go to every single day to make science happen. The thing is, what I'd like to do for the next 10 minutes or so is, is cut a little bit of the romanticism about science and see if we can actually approach science like scientists. Um, it seems that everything we do, we like to quantify and analyze and assess. But when it comes to assessing the value of our own work and really working out what it is that makes kind of scientific innovation so good, we tend to throw our hands up in the air and say it's obvious. Mm, now, of course we do that. Without that argument, we might be out of a job. Um, but I hope that kind of by, by, by addressing this question like a scientist, that's not to say in a boring way, but just in, a, in a, a careful way, we might really be able to work out like, the essence of, of what makes science so powerful, and maybe even enhance that, and make science even better. 
Um, so I work in a field called synthetic biology. For a long time in biology, we sought to explain the natural world. We, we observe phenomena and want to understand exactly why they happen. The very modern idea behind synthetic biology is that we can take what we already know and use it to build new things. And they might be synthetic, they might not exist in the real world. I'm thinking about bacteria that might be able to turn waste fuels into useful products. Um, I'm talking about plants that glow in the dark or drugs that can move around in your body and find cancer cells and kill them before kind of current diagnostics even know they exist. Um, this kind of thing is especially exciting because it sits at the interface between lots of different <coughs> scientists. And that's one of the most powerful things about modern science. We're not just sitting in these silos of physics and chemistry and biology, like the three speakers tonight represent, but at the interfaces between these different sciences, even more exciting things can happen. And synthetic biology broadly sits at this interface between maybe engineering and some chemistry and some biology, and brings all of those together to do very special things. Um, and, and what's most important about that to me is that although synthetic biology satisfies the same curiosity that um, uh, the, young, the young girl playing with the peach has, um, or the chemist has, or any other scientist, it satisfies that curiosity in a, in a modern and, and accountable way. It recognises that no longer as scientists can we just kind of sit there collecting interesting facts about the world, but I think we're responsible to society. And the way, we need to, the way that responsibility manifests itself is we need to make things happen. I think we need to recognise as scientists that we have a great power to do incredible things in society, but the resources and the time and the money and the brilliant people that science depends on are things that we compete for with all kinds of other enterprises which can also make a difference in society. So what I would push for is both an appreciation of the incredible things science can do, but also better ways of understanding how we can best kind of use those resources and time and money. We need to be accountable. So, carrying on with the thread of synthetic biology, um, let's see if we can work out a way to do that. It's clear that science has kind of tangible and intangible effects. Lots of them have been discussed tonight. And broadly, people often say that science fits into two groups. You can either do basic or blue skies research. Basic research is um, normally more motivated by curiosity. It's for the sake of um, seeing what we can find out and maybe 20 years down the line, something cool will come out of it, maybe not. And then there's applied research, um, you know, which is much more focused on, on technology and innovation. In the UK, something like 65% of um, R&D spending, money spent on research and design, research and development, um, is, is on the applied side. It's spent by business, really. And the fraction that gets spent by higher education is something like 25%, and then even less by the research councils. So already we've got a kind of focus on, on applied science. But it's a misconception to think that um, science can only be basic or only be applied. Really, there's a continuum. Um, all kinds of science sits somewhere on this continuum. But just because it's a continuum doesn't mean it's a conveyor belt. It doesn't mean that everything that starts at the basic end will end up becoming applied. And I think that as scientists, scientists whose work is largely paid for
by you guys, by society. We need to do everything we can to make sure that um, the exciting things we do at the basic end really do get translated into research that makes a difference. So the exciting example um, that I work on, and that it wouldn't surprise me lots of you have heard of in the media, is something called denating. Um, it's this idea that all of us are made of DNA. We're made of this long series of letters, A, C, G, T, and infinitum. And uh, sometimes these letters can go wrong. Even when they don't go wrong, the series of those letters, like the words in a book, um, arranged into chapters, can change our characteristics. And if we could only come up with a way of editing those letters, maybe changing their order, chopping some out, moving kind of chapter one to after chapter three, we might be able to change the way we look, um, change who we are, or even cure diseases. Um, and the most exciting technology at the moment in gene editing is something called CRISPR. Um, CRISPR wouldn't have been invented if about 10 or 15 years ago some scientists, out of sheer curiosity, hadn't been trying to investigate the genome, this series of letters, in a really obscure bacteria. They were just interested. And the more they looked, the more they discovered this strange quirk in the way the genome was organised. And that led them to discover a sort of immune system in the bacteria, a way that the bacteria defended against viruses. Um, probably that would, have, that would have been it if it hadn't been for even more curious scientists who thought, why don't we use this immune system in mammalian cells, that's cells like ours, to see if we can edit the DNA. Um, and fast forward 10 years, now all over the world, every day, people are using this technology to try to change the series of letters that appear in these cells. Um, and without looking into the crystal ball too much, I can predict that maybe in 20 to 40 years' time, this same technology might be being used routinely in fertilised embryos, for example, to try to edit the genome that exists in humans. Okay? Maybe I'll come back to the ethical questions at the end that I'm sure are popping up in lots of people's heads. And um, I'd love to discuss kind of positions on those with people. But as far as the basic science goes, to me that's a clear example of why basic science can um, really make a difference in society. But why is it so rare? Why is it that really um, kind of for, for, for the one in a million incredible things that comes out of basic science, most other things just get forgotten? Is, is that necessary? Uh, do we need to have this kind of vastly inefficient system? Or can we make it better? What I'm advocating is that we need a lot more research into research. Yeah. And maybe that research won't get done by scientists. Maybe it won't be done by scientists like your three speakers tonight. It might be done by social scientists. People who can really accurately determine what the benefit of a particular innovation is. Um, how, for example, when you take uh, a particular drug, uh, let's say a drug to treat cancer, how can you work out exactly how much kind of benefit that drug has brought to society? Sure, you can probably total all the research spending in most of the labs that led to the discovery of that drug. You might have to factor in the cost of the, um, uh, um, 
the people who developed that drug, maybe consider that they could have otherwise been working in hospitals, treating people every day, or working in schools, or whatever. Uh, then you've got to factor in the cost of providing that drug, but also the cost of the care that the drug avoids. You've got to consider things like how much longer the drug makes people live. Is that a good thing, or is it an increased burden on society? Um, these aren't questions I can answer. They're not even questions I could hope to provide answers to. But I think if we really to get to this question of why we do research, we've got to stop throwing our hands up in the air and saying, of course it's fantastic. Of course it is, let's be honest. But we've got to start trying to answer questions like this. We've got to look at gene editing. We've got to look at... Um, Embryology, we've got to look at particle physics, we've got to look at all kinds of chemistry and see if we can see what it is that makes them special. Um, and then lastly, um, a really important question is who should make these decisions? Um, tonight you've heard from three scientists and I'm sure we'll hear from some other scientists when we have a discussion in a second. But of course we're biased. We love what we do, we see the beauty of it, um, and kind of it pays the bills or, or, or fills our time at least. Um, it doesn't pay the bills. But um, when it comes down to what science we should do, especially ethical questions, that's where I think as scientists we have an obligation to involve the rest of society. So, really, to answer the question, um, why should we do research? To, to measure the true value of science, we need to get answers from everyone. Um, and it's all well and good to say that, but that means we need everyone to understand our science as well. So I think as scientists, um, one of the reasons we should do science is to communicate it to the public, um, to ensure that everyone can kind of make reasonable value judgments about what we do. If um, as Professor Isava showed at the beginning, kind of the mark of an enlightened society is that it spends quite a lot on science. The UK spends something like 1.6% of its GDP on science. Probably the lowest worldwide is around 1.3%. Um, I think in South Korea, which tends to top the tables, they spend 2.5% of their GDP on science. If that's the mark of a quite enlightened society, then surely the most enlightened society will have real reasons about why it spends money on different kinds of science. It'll know how much money to devote to basic research, how much to applied research, and it will have tools for measuring the benefit that all of that brings. Um, and then, most of all, on top of that, um, an enlightened society will know enough about the value of its science to make ethical decisions. Not just to say that we can do science, but also to answer questions like, should we do science? Um, and more and more as we look towards the future with, with technologies which really get at the essence of what it is to be human, like gene editing, um, these ethical questions uh, are going to become more and more important. So I'd really encourage everyone to think not just um, about whether we should do science, but, but also how. Um, I very much look forward to hearing everyone else's opinions on that as well. Thank you. All right, that was a fantastic set of panelists. 
And right now we're gonna open up the floor for the panelists to have a short discussion, uh, maybe to highlight or ask questions among yourselves. Oh, um, I'll, I'll attack you first, if I may. <laughs> I'm wholly opposed to trying to assess the value of research. How long do you wait? Do you wait for 50 years before you start assessing it? Or do you do it the following year? Governments like doing it in real time. But you actually can't tell the advantages of various research um, discoveries for years and years. I remember, everyone here, almost everyone, is um, too young to remember the invention of the laser. No one had a clue what to do with it. You know, it was, okay, we'll make a toy from it and shoot flies with it. Um, but you know, it's everywhere. And had that been assessed you know, that day, it would have been written off. Now, you can't move without lasers, and it's transformed society. And there are plenty of other examples of that. You know, even special relativity, which cost, what, about four Deutschmarks, I should think, because it was done in Einstein's spare time. Um, <laughs> the, the world is riddled with relativity now. So, um, and quantum theory uh, did cost a little bit more. But I think people have said that, well, is it 60 or 70% of the United States technological output is based upon quantum theory? Uh, yeah. Had you written it off that week, then you wouldn't have got there. So I'm opposed. I want laissez-faire in science. Science can proceed only through laissez-faire. There. <laughs> so, so I like, so again, when you said we need to be accountable, that rubbed me the wrong way again. Because I feel a lot of funding requests and I need to argue for my economic impact of the research I'm doing. And I find that kind of question, as I had said in the pre-discussion before we went on, like somebody asking me, what is the smell of blue? When he or she asked me, tell me what the economic impact of your fundamental research will be. You didn't get the point of why I'm doing this. If you ask me that question, it is the wrong question or the wrong shape to put on science. I try to argue in my talk that science should be curiosity driven and the applied research follows. I mean, it comes. I mean, as with the laser, the, the theoretical models were developed, and people basically start to do applied research on it to actually see if we can realize such a thing which was predicted in the theoretical models. And then they invented the laser, and then later on, we found out what we can do with it. And my, I, I'm very much convinced that knowledge gain is Paired, and paired with a mature and ethical working society will benefit societies, no matter how. Knowledge can be used also in a way which is, will be de detrimental to societies, but that again depends on the maturity and the um, aims of that society doing that research. Hmm. And I had read once people, I mean, and one thing that, for example, technology and science are like, like the double helix of the DNA, winding it open. I think they are not education, science, and 
technology development are a triple mind DNA-like thing because all of them pull each other forward. If you give knowledge to a society which is not educated, you will end up in a catastrophe. And by doing science, by making people go through the process of learning these techniques, you educate people. I don't think, I do outreach. Outreach can only do so much. You need to educate people in critical thinking and scientific methods such that they at the end can become uh, what the, uh, mature people or citizens who can judge and take decisions which will lead these societies forward. Mm. But saying what is the economic impact factor of what you're doing sometimes drives me up the walls. <laughs> I think you know? it, 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 it drives you up the wall with good reason. Opinion, you know? It is too short-sighted and uh, history has taught us so many times over and over that we do quite well with the knowledge we are gaining. Even if it's lies there for centuries, we may come back to it, you know. One day we see it fits together, all of a sudden another new discovery and this one together gives you something completely new you didn't thought of before. I don't think it's lost, what you said. It's lost, it's wasted, it's not. Knowledge is not lost. Only if it's burns or whatever gets down the drain. I couldn't agree more. I don't think any knowledge is lost at all. Um, I do fundamental science and um, fully stand behind the value of it. Um, I think it would be kind of uh, at best optimistic, at worst stupid to pick up, say, the GPS in my mobile phone and, and think that we could have arrived at that any quicker than, you know, the circuitous route of Einstein publishing um, something on relativity in 1904, 1905, and then 50, 60 years later the, te the technology arises. But you, you put your finger on it, um, I think, with the word, the word kind of waste and, and, and how irritated you are by this continuous economic assessment of science. It is short-sighted, but that's why I think we need to do it better. Um, it, it's unrealistic to say that we can avoid it entirely. Do you, think um, do you think bureaucrats know how to do science better than scientists? Of course not. But so, that's why it's our responsibility to help them do it better. We're not going to get away from economic assessment. So do you think one We're not going to get away... You also think that one scientist can tell another scientist how better to proceed? Yes. Gosh. I mean... I think we... Uh, um, I mean, Perhaps not within the hard sciences, but within the social sciences. Oh, um, they're not sciences. <laughs> <laughs> within those sciences, we, 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 turn, we turn the analytical knife to all kinds of things to work out if they're the right thing to do. And it, uh, it, it's, it's a fact of life that there's a limited pot of money that gets mm. spent on science. I wish that pot was bigger, don't we all? But limited as it is, I think if we actually understand and, and kind of romanticise a bit less all the wonderful things science does, we might be able to use that pot of money even better. Because um, I, I don't agree with being accountable to the research councils or the bureaucrats or the people knocking on our doors with technology assessments. Probably that's not going to change though. But I think we're accountable to society. And if we hold ourselves to this benchmark of doing science in order to improve society, whether it's now or in 100 years time or in 1,000 years time, then I think that's, that's aspirationally the best thing we can do. I think as soon as you let a scientist judge another scientist, he, he or she be, becomes, slips through a trap door and becomes a bureaucrat. I, I don't think you can set up a structure where scientists appropriately judge other scientists. 
Professor I think that judging is happening. If I publish a paper and I have written something completely bogus, I'm being, I, mean, I can guarantee I will be ripped apart and I will lose reputation and that will basically stop me doing science and that's one control mechanism. One thing I wanted to say, an impression I want to combat here is, I mean, as I indicated, I feel fortunate to, be li to live in a society which allows me to do full-time research. And I have told it to my students, this, this privilege I have means also that I am obliged to serve, in a, it's a service I'm giving back to the society. And the service I'm giving back to the society is the knowledge I'm gaining, I'm publishing it, I'm giving it back, I'm educating my students and PhD students in these scientific techniques. And another thing I want to combat here is scientific techniques are not frozen. I can tell you that within the 20 years I'm in particle physics, we are now using neural network analysis to do our analysis. So we are trying to uh, use techniques our brain is using to do data analysis. So we are, t I mean, t the scientific methods are <coughs> developing and further evolving. So this is not just um, that we are not interested in, in evolving these further. Okay. And um, I, I just don't think that everything needs to be, uh, I mean, and I'm okay to be, re out to, to be asked uh, how many papers did you publish with the funding. I think that's a much better way to assess my productivity as a researcher than asking me what is your economic impact on the society. And um, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that, to be scrutinized on that level. What is the quality of your papers that I'm being, uh, as a scientist, being... Uh, Where I do agree with you, of course, is that there is a great deal of rather mediocre science that, that gets done. I think that you still have to judge you know, how much manure you have to put in the cellar to get decent <laughs> mushrooms. Um, and, uh, uh, so uh, you know, you've got to accept that it's, it's a kind of lottery. I think we have one comment from the audience. Yeah. No, I, I just a bit troubled that you sort of uh, answered the question as the value of scientific research by references what I find a very unnervingly over-abstract concept of society in general, because actually the, the things that decide how science, a particular bit of science is used, or whether it's developed, is much more specific. It's to do with specific companies, specific institutions, specific individuals, specific classes, specific nations, you know, specific trade relations, it's not that such a generalization that you can say, how is the value of science to be measured by such a general abstract to society? I think the things that operate on what, society, what science is valued, what science gets used, what science is funded, what science is given publicity, what science is suppressed from the public domain, all these things are affected by much more specific factors than a, a kind of cosy sense of society as a whole, as a, as a generalised kind of humanistic concept, which is different for different humans in different places in the world. You know. some, some Indian people find the scientific development of patented genomes of certain seeds the ruin of their families and livelihoods. You know. 
I think it's very clear that there are um, both tangible and intangible benefits of science, as I said, and I think you're right in that sense. Perhaps one of the beauties of science is that it, it does transcend national boundaries. In, the most, uh, in most cases, we collaborate. CERN is an incredible example, as is Oxford, right here. Um, but I think you're quite right. Um, right now, it's very difficult for us to measure um, or even know how within this abstract fuzzy concept of society science has different effects on on different things broadly yes we can say most of the things we do are good but what i tried to suggest at the end was that we can't be certain about that kind of thing um, and uh, for example one thing that we don't know very clearly is how much innovation um, comes from academic science and how much from industrial research. Um, at least in terms of spending, industrial research is much more significant in most developed countries. And indeed, in terms of technology, it tends to be that way as well. Um, if we could understand things like that better, I think we could do better science. I, I think one point I would like to contend is that much of the research that continues in industry is based off of basic science research incubated in academia. And um, as someone who's studying medicine at, uh, in the US, and here I'm doing my DPhil in medical engineering, I'm well aware of how the healthcare industry operates. We have very large conglomerates, places like Johnson & Johnson, BMS, GSK, Mart, I mean, large, large companies who essentially will buy out or license technology from investigators at the bench side who continue on in their careers with some sort of industry relationship that may or may not be able to provide them the independence to pursue their own passionate basic science research while in tandem creating astronomical drug prices, at least in the United States, which make these drugs, which public money has invested in, um, inaccessible to a number of folks from less privileged backgrounds. Yeah, so as I said, it, I wanted, when I came, I mean, science is about creating knowledge. What happens to this knowledge is the responsibility of the groups or the members of the society. That's, that's the point I wanted to make. I don't think one can just generalize and say science is always good for societies, the knowledge we have gained. It depends on the society this knowledge drops on. And that's why education is important. It goes hand, I mean, your example about what happens in India, the knowledge being used in detrimental ways, it is our responsibility how we use this knowledge. It doesn't mean science is bad. It is about what do you do with that knowledge. And that knowledge, as I said, you can take and make good things about it. it. It's wholly depending on your motivation and your aspiration. If it is to make as much money for the corporate world in America for this healthcare system, you will end up with these uh, bad uh, bending of what science could be doing to the society. If the aspiration of the society is to give us better life conditions for everybody, which are su uh, sustainable, which are affordable, things would look different. It is what, and that's why it comes back to the society, what kind of society, what kind of vision 
What, of, what kind of aspirations do we want to have as a society? That will define the benefit you will get out of science. And that is, I think, what I learned while I was thinking about this topic. Education, science, and applied research go hand in hand, technology. And if you take one out of the context and leave, leave one behind, you end up in a very imbalanced and bad situation for society. So, so you think that science can modify the aspirations of society? Yes, I hope so. I yes. mean, that's your implication. Yes, if, if you have societies or members of the societies who have learned to argue with each other, to listen to each other and the facts and the arguments, and are also willing to admit, actually I was wrong in my interpretation, looking at evidence. I think that creates a, a person, I, I am a person, I try to be always reminding myself, don't be arrogant, be humble. Data teaches you to be humble. Whatever you believe about what's in the data, it doesn't matter, it's what speaks out of there. And I'm being taught by my students that I'm wrong, I'm being taught by my fellow colleagues that I'm wrong, and I'm teaching them sometimes that they're wrong. But I think societies or members of society who go through this experience go also into debates which are, in a mature way, into debates which are important for societies. Certainly one of the, one of the amazing things science teaches is, is respect for evidence. Yes. And in kind of this post-truth alternative facts world, that's, that's hard, yeah. what we need. I'd be interested in people's opinions. Um, does science, I was going to say Trump, does, does science win over society? Um, or as perhaps in my field, it feels like science is trodden upon by society. Society's kind of um, opinions are informed by a lot more than evidence. And the science that we do gets influenced by that. Um, I don't make decisions in a vacuum. And thanks again for everybody for coming. And Thanks again. This has been a really enlightening discussion, and I didn't realize it'd be kind of so lively and, you know, I think engaging in this manner. It's really been really nice to hear different perspectives. All right.